Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. In conversations and strident calls for racial justice and equal opportunity, the issue of complacency among the privileged is often overlooked. It's a really messy area to unpack. Those pressing for change typically face a delicate balance between bringing powers that be on side and overturning unworkable structures that need to completely change. My guest today, however, has no such qualms. Jenna Arnold, author of the book, Raising Our Hands, brings years of experience working to solve problems regarding equitable education, food distribution, climate sustainability, community growth, and empowering women and marginalized populations to her latest work. The book is, as she puts it, a reckoning call for white women, digging head-on into what she regards as the common characteristics and complacency that often keep this very powerful demographic from becoming more engaged and more impactful as citizens. Jenna, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks for having me. It is so exciting to have you. And off-air, I was like basically showering you with praise. You are just this incredible human being, and I appreciate your work. And I'm going to start with kind of a strange competitive compliment, which is, the book could be confused as being quite similar to, at least in theme, to White Fragility, a book that's gotten a lot of attention and a lot of publicity and a fair amount of criticism as well. And I'm going on the record here saying, like I said just five minutes ago, we were in off air, but it's much better than that book. And that book, I think, has very good intentions. But what you've been able to do with Raising Our Hands is provide a different framework for all people, not just white women, but older white guys like me, for all people to open their aperture and see the world through different eyes and hopefully eyes of pushing for greater equity and generosity and justice for all. And your book kept my attention. Like I said, when we're off air, I often listen while I'm riding my bike. Again, only my right ear, not my road ear. So I'm very, very careful. But I'm on these long, long rides, right? And I'm training for things that are stupid, endurance events. And I like to listen to podcasts and books. And I often lose my attention. Your book kept my attention. So I want to start with why write the book? You have an incredible history. And I also like the fact, and I'll stop talking, I promise, because I'm interviewing you. You're not interviewing me. That you are very vulnerable in the book. You talk about your own childhood. You talk about being bullied, stresses in your own life, and how that's made you a stronger person, and how you actually turn those into strength. And I appreciate that because I don't think enough people make themselves vulnerable. And of course, you also quote Brene Brown, who I love, multiple times in the book. So anyway, what was the impetus for the book? Well, thank you so much for that praise. I do find the psyche of people who put themselves and their bodies through crazy training for crazy, ridiculous, 100-mile runs, like fascinating. So we'll table that conversation. But it's impressive that you're able to read what sometimes can be considered a dense subject and an emotionally exhausting subject. But uh, vulnerability my hypothesis right now is that the only way that we're going to be able to get to where we're going, and just so we're clear, I have no idea really where that is, but just in the effort of moving forward, I know that we have to move back into each other. And the only way we can do that is by centering vulnerability because vulnerability like joy and envy and rage and fear are so human, but our American narrative has told us like vulnerability suggests weakness and not knowing what to do next is a failure on your part. And I think the freedom and the grace that comes with the humility of I don't knowness is ultimately going to be how we potentially salvage ourselves outside of a democracy, but within communities, within families for how we're protecting our understanding and self-worth for me individually and for you. So yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability in the book because I was just very confused and giving a beloved shout out to D'Angelo who wrote a book that I was part of my study. What I realized in in reading White Fragility is that I needed like the class right before the White Fragility. So I often think about my book as the 101. Here's what your Barbie house told you. Here's what prom meant. Here's the blueprint that you had to follow. Here's why you had to have China on your wedding registry. Here's 
this path that we were all sort of pushed down, even though, yes, we had these freedoms to make independent choices around who we wanted to be in love with and the university we wanted to go to and how we wanted to study. But there's this very specific series of steps that broadly speaking, most of us take that are the foundations of a capitalistic, patriarchal, white supremacist world. And I fell for all of them and I tried to get A's on all of them and I still do it. And it wasn't until I started questioning some of those things did I see where my real power and potential influence is. And then ultimately, like where the real harm existed for the marginalized. And I wrote this book because I needed to read it. I was desperately asking questions that no one else was asking. And I have heard scholars for generations say like white folk need to go get white folk and no one's interested in being gotten. But this kind of broad concept of like, how are you inviting more people into this work? How are you going and dealing with your cousins? That became a real requirement post-2016 for me and my family. And I'm one of many family members. I roll like 60 deep on my mom's family and we're on WhatsApp every day with each other. And a percentage of them voted for a candidate that I just very much felt like was in complete contradiction to their values and their morals and who they raised me to be. And so I started trying to reckon with what I didn't do, how I fell asleep when Barack was in office and how I just assumed Hillary would skate right in. And and how our political system has really set us up for failure to contradict ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was one of the organizers of the Women's March. And so many people were like, go get your communities. And at that moment, hearing the voices of Malcolm X, who said, white people, go get white people, to activists on the front line today, I was like, okay, got it. We got to go get white people. Where's the organization? What's the listserv I need to sign up for? Where's the book I need to read? And I was like a meerkat, like peeked my head up above the fence to be like, where are all the people doing this? And it was crickets. No one was doing it. So I started traveling in the country, asking the questions and doing the work. And then I realized it would be selfish if I just kept it all in my head. So I wrote it in this book. And how important were these listening circles? So you purposely tried to find a very healthy cross-section of white women from different backgrounds with different political beliefs and raised across different circumstances to try to influence. And in some cases, in some parts, it's actually kind of funny you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> and and I appreciate it. I think it's, it's there's some very funny moments. Right. It sounds like you could have participated in some of the listening circles. <laughs> yeah. Well, me and your husband, Jeremy, I feel like Jeremy should be on the podcast because I'm like this poor guy. I mean, you're kind to him, but you definitely throw a little shade at him when it comes to like changing light bulbs and things like that. But I appreciate that. It's good. I mean, Yes, my poor husband in the book, he ended up becoming like the representation of men, the patriarchy, all of the things. He was like, why is it just me? Why do I have to shoulder all of this? And it was like, because you're in my kitchen with me. Like, I see how you dance around the maneuvers. And it's not just Jeremy. Like, the truth is, is it's so many men in my life. But yeah. But it's so interesting because your book, and I don't know if you set out to do this on purpose, or if it was just kind of a happy adjacency or a consequence. But you also touch on things, maybe indirectly, about the relationships between partners, right? Husbands and wives or whatever social structure. So oftentimes my wife will say to me, and she's highly educated, and she and I, and she really made the decision to stay home with our kids. And she's like, it's not that the work that I do isn't lesser than and it's actually unpaid. And for the longest time, I'm like, well, you kind of get paid because I get paid. And she's like, no, it's different. And we've been having these conversations over and over again. And even now our kids are older. It's like, okay, so what's next as they're leaving the house and going to college and becoming full adults. And you touch on these things and you talk about the hours of unpaid work for women versus men in a way that doesn't make me defensive or angry or feel guilty. It actually opened my eyes a little bit and I actually have more empathy than I ever had before. And it's just different. So did you intend to do that or was that just kind of a happy consequence because it's on the fringe of these larger topics that you were addressing? 
It's so interesting to hear you say that. I have been surprised by the amount of men who have read the book and have had these kinds of moments of clarity. And that's the first time I'm hearing it. And so, no, I didn't necessarily intend that because this was a book written for women who were already doing that labor. If your wife read those pages, she'd be like, yeah, no, duh. So I think any of that would be foreign to her. And yeah, women labor between four to 10 times harder than men. And that's just because it's been easier for men to opt out of loading the dishwasher after dinner because women just tend to stand up faster to do it. And so no, that wasn't an intention of mine. That was more of I see you, lady. Right. And how many listening circles and how many people did you have in these listening circles? And how long did that take? The listening circles, I don't know how many, probably hovering in the 100 range. The amount of participants I tried to keep between 8 and 12, sometimes it got to 15, sometimes it was in the 20 range. And I felt when it got there, most people, it got a little, not unruly, but the type A folk would like really make sure that they spoke first and would dominate. Whereas if it was in a little bit more of an intimate setting, it could just get a little bit more intimate and a little bit deeper quickly. So my preference, my like a real sweet listening circle size would be eight people. And they would last between like two and five hours, depending on the weeknight, depending on the time of day, depending on how much boxed wine there was, and if there was enough cheese on the coffee table, and if we were in the living room or in the kitchen, or, you know, there was just a lot of variables. But I did, I will say this, every time I left one, this is such an obnoxious and presumptuous thing to say, so let me say it in a public space. I felt like I got these ladies now. Like, I got it. I know it. The only thing I'm getting at this point are anecdotes. The only thing I'm getting at this point are examples. Because one, growing up and being raised in a very close family with my mom is one of nine, loads of sisters, all very different, but still a lot of similarities enough to like make some generalizations. But because I saw myself in every single one of the women. Right. Because, like, I could sometimes people today are like, oh, Karen's. And I'm like, hold on one second. You want me to put my Karen hat on? Like, do you want to understand? Like, you have a Karen? Give me 10 seconds. Okay. She's here. It's all very familiar to me. Yeah. And you also you talk about your Jewish identity in the book. And one of the things I appreciate, because I haven't read it this way before is the spelling, this bullshit myth, this trope that you're not Jewish unless your mom is Jewish. Now, I'm Jewish, my wife's not. We decided to raise our kids as Jewish, and then they're ultimately going to identify or not identify. They had bar and bat mitzvahs. My mom's a Holocaust survivor. And I've had close friends say to me, well, your son, you know, he's really not Jewish. And I have this fucking rage inside of me when people say that. I'm like, how dare you? And for you to shed a light on the fact that actually it comes from a point of exclusion, I think is what you said, when certain sects of Judaism and Jewish society were trying to keep them whole and keep the community together and not allow the others or outsiders in. Yeah, I have like real wounds from that. It happened a week and a half ago in a meeting Somehow the, the person who is hosting the meeting is conservative, amazing guy whose name we all know, but I won't share it here. Conservative was talking about Shabbat. I haven't had an amazing challah recipe that I pretend my great-grandmother smuggled out of Germany, but I think she just got it from like the synagogue cookbook. But it's an amazing challah recipe. People will often say to me, for those who are listening, I have blonde hair and blue eyes. I'm very Nordic looking. I do not read Jewish. And they'll say, oh, wait, you're Jewish? And I'm like, well, I'm Jewish. And then we go <laughs> into that conversation about like, well, what does that mean? Who are you? Who are you not? And I think Jews in general understandably have had to insulate themselves and protect themselves over time and still to this day. But I have been called into question for raising concerns about the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. And people will say, but you're not Jewish. And I'm like, well, how do you know? One. And two, everyone should be concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism. And three, the more the Jewish community does in saying who can and can't sit on the bench, 
means that we have less soldiers in our army to protect what is so sacred about Judaism, which is lots of different interpretations of it. But when I think about the sacredness of Judaism, I think about Jerusalem, I think about the Wailing Wall, I think about lighting candles on Fridays so that we stop. I think about Tikkun Olam. I think about all of these things that I'm like, your kosher rules, sure, if you want to do that, but like, don't show up and tell me what is and isn't anti-Semitic. Don't try to define Zionism for me. Don't tell me who is and isn't allowed to talk about swastikas on the side of our school buses. And the community, I think, has done such a good job of saying who is and isn't allowed to play that all of these people who would be willing to play aren't actually raising their hands. Right. I think that is beautifully said. And look, like most religions, it's highly genderized. It goes back thousands of years. But what I love about the reform movement in particular, and full disclosure, I'm president of my temple. That's a really good disclosure in the context of this one conversation, but thanks for that. But it's a reform synagogue, and I think it's also a very progressive synagogue, and my, our clergy are amazing. But it's not just the Tikkun Olam. In the reform movement, the prayer books are constantly updated to reflect what's going on now versus a view or a worldview from 3,000 years ago, which we don't all want to live in, right? Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about Judaism and my faith. And also, I will, and I'll send you the video, I do quote you at the end of my High Holy Day speech, which I just recorded because it's virtual. My grandmother freaked Yes. Well, you should be proud of the fact that my last video right after COVID to the congregation, I quoted, actually it wasn't a video, in a communication, I quoted Brene Brown. And then, I, but I quoted you in my last one to end my seven and a half minute speech. So I'll send it to you. I promise. Oh my gosh. That is such an important, that's a milestone for my family. Well, and it's a quote. I don't have it exactly about how everyone's connected now more than ever before. And we are all in this kind of together, right? Yeah, we all have together. And this whole idea of mentioning the 3000 old prayer books, I was on a radio show last week. I don't know when this is going to air, but y'all remember this a bit. Meghan Merkel came out supporting people voting. And I was on this British radio show who was like, they were all up in arms, up in arms that Meghan vouched for voting and had alluded to the importance of change come November. Not mentioning where her politics lie, but sure, we know where they lie. And the woman I was sparring against goes in her British accent, I won't try and do it because that would be insulting, but she was like, we used to decapitate royals for weighing in on politics. And my response was like, well, you used to decapitate people for weighing in on politics, and now you don't. So maybe now you can allow people to use their voice to participate in the comings and goings of the world. Like this idea of like 400 years ago, the royals used to decapitate people for weighing in on politics. 3,000 years ago, prayer books looked certain ways. Like what is this concept of having to reform, adjust, be super techie, and pivot, disrupt? Like there's just so much movement that has to happen right now. You look at our electoral college, the constitution is the oldest constitution on the planet. 140 plus countries have used our constitution to write their own. And theirs, as far as I'm concerned, are just much more updated. And I keep saying like, we got to drag that bad boy into a Google doc and start tracking some changes. It is just time to redo. And we've had a our roads need redoing, our education systems need redoing, our constitution needs an update. Why the hell are we voting on Tuesday? And this idea of pushing us up doesn't mean that we have to let go of who we are. Yeah. And by the way, the royals also enslaved half the world at one point in history. Right, exactly. So, And I'm not saying that we're any better because we're not, but part of moving forward is acknowledging your past. And it's just so interesting. I was reading this story in the New York Times just a few days ago about Continental Tire. Apparently, there's a book that's out about Continental Tire, a German company who finally, this many years later, admitted to being complicit and being part of the Nazi war machine and the regime, just like Bayer and a bunch of other companies, right? And it doesn't mean that I'm going to not necessarily buy Conti tires for my bike or my car, but Finally, they and Deutsche Bank, who helped finance the gas chambers, right? These companies need to at least acknowledge a past and then figure out how can they do their best to make sure it never happens again and they can be part of solutions going forward. So there's got to be some sort of belief that countries 
and or companies that are the size of countries, i.e. Facebook or Google, have a responsibility. And for those who have maybe have participated or been complicit in, in horrendous activities of the past, there's still an opportunity for them to turn it around. It doesn't mean we shouldn't necessarily patronize them as long as they acknowledge it and they move on and they raise their hand. And by the way, just before you answer that, the context of my speech was he nay nay, here I am, which is all about raising your hand. And it's referenced like eight times in the Torah, four of which is in Rosh Hashanah. Really? Yes. Okay, well, I need a little bit more clarity on that from you. But yeah, you know, it's time for us to be honest with ourselves. In the book, I and I really wrestled with whether or not I wanted to get this superficial and draw this superficial of an analogy, but this idea of like a white supremacist diet. And I worked with a lot of sensitivity editors in the book, a lot of them. And even after writing 380 words, and I have like 400 something sources, uh, 380 pages and 400 sources, like I really did my homework. I still had sensitivity editors come through and be like, yeah, no, here, you can't do that wrong word, whatever it is. So this one concept around the white supremacy diet is like, for those of us who have been on diets before, it's not about putting a Krispy Kreme donut down. It's about how we approach the breakfast buffet that we're going to confront for the rest of our lives and how we navigate around it. And so sometimes when companies are like, we might have done X, Y, Z in the past, it's like pretending like they didn't eat the Krispy Kreme diet. The Krispy Kreme, I don't know why I keep it up. And it's also not about moving on. It's about taking that and making sure it's part of the foundation of our character and making sure that it's a part of how we're moving forward in the world. So are there reparations that companies can pay? Are there ways that the company is using that as part of their conversation and their narrative and their brand? And there's a part of me that's like, I've worked with a handful of recovering KKK leaders, one very specific white supremacist that has currently sought asylum here in the States was in Germany, and he found a number of KKK chapters throughout Germany, Nazi chapters throughout Germany. And his story of how he's had to retattoo swastikas on his arms and how he's built this amazing organization that's working toward peace and bringing in clergy from different parts of the country in Memphis together that's an important part of him and his movement in the world, corporation or individual. And the humility that he's able to bring into those conversations or just in his being, because he could just operate like as a tatted up guy and like start a fashion company or something like that. But the missteps of where he was and calling out the harm and repairing it is part of his real delivery. And the real blessing we have of him. So if companies say, like, I did this, in some cases, it's unknowingly, right? That's something that I wrestle with a little bit in the book is like, where is the ignorance? And then where was the voluntary ignorance? And there's this- Willful blindness is the other, what, right? Right. The, the, my favorite quote, it's impossible to wake a sleeping person who's pretending to sleep. Some of us were so hard to pretend to be asleep. It can be a really important part of who we are. And let me just make something crystal clear to everyone. If you are a VC, if you are a politician, if you're going to be an author, a personality, and you talked about sovereign nations, Facebook and Google having more power than sovereign nation, there's influencers online that have more power than like many sovereign nations combined. If you've had a hiccup and you either know about it or don't know about it, you have to prepare yourself to be humbled in public. And that's part of the exercise. That's what the democratic ticket is requiring of people today is like, he's not perfect. He's not my candidate, but I'll die on that mountain. And he's going to force us all to live in the gray. And so the Me Too movement, it was all about like cancel culture and bringing everybody down. But it was never, we never held up the magnifying glass to like why men thought they had the right to do that. And we just called it misogyny. I'm curious what you think about the difference between being humbled and being canceled. So I was just, I try not to, but I was like, you know, scrolling through Instagram the other day and I saw this picture of Adele. And I don't know if you caught this, but she is, uh, yeah. So, and I can't remember what holiday it was, but she was genuinely and authentically trying to celebrate a holiday of another nation that couldn't be celebrated. So she did it virtually. She dressed up, she did her hair 
in a way that was particularly offensive to, I can't even remember what ethnicity, what culture? She did bone two knots, which are little mini buns that are how women of color sometimes wear their hair. Right. So you had a lot of anger. You had a lot of folks who are like, thank you for honoring this day. I don't take offense to this. You're actually raising awareness and you're beautiful and thank you for everything. And you had other people who are like, this is racist. How dare you? You're appropriating my culture. And I was kind of, I'm not for or against Adele. I'm not even a fan necessarily, but I felt for her and I felt she was unfairly being criticized. But I guess when you're in the public eye, that is what comes with it, right? And it's not what people say, it's how you react to what they say. I think that's right. I think that's right. So like, listen, I'm a huge Adele fan, huge Adele fan. But the point is, is that we are all always going to mess up. I am a Jewish woman and I have anti-Semitic biases I have to work on, right? I catch myself when I do those things. And so what happened with Adele appropriating what is traditionally the way that Black women will wear their hair is a opportunity for us to talk about what appropriation is and what it means. And it's not like, erase her from all your Spotify playlists. It's an opportunity for Adele to be like, huh, I didn't actually really consider that. And shame on me for not recognizing that this is contested territory. And the truth is, is Adele shouldn't be participating in that very contested, complicated conversation about who is and isn't allowed to wear kimonos if you're not Japanese, who is and isn't allowed to paint certain paintings if you're not. There's lots of discussion about how art collectors and art museums will buy paintings from painters who are interpreting a moment in time and that painter might not be affiliated with that culture. And I think the opportunities for her to be like, wow, I didn't see this coming at all. So let's have this conversation. Right. And it's also fine for her to land in a place of like, I don't know if I agree, but it's helpful to engage in this productive conversation. I just worry that the threat of being canceled or called out like that and shamed will create more silence amongst more people. And then you're not going to have that dialogue. That's my fear. Because I'd rather have the tough conversation and the tough dialogue than kind of retreat and be like, oh my God, I'm just going to be super plain and very, very quiet for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. Well, I think it's absolutely happening, right? This, how am I going to perform allyship in a perfect way? How am I, you know, I don't want to get slapped on the hand. And I would say that as you were scrolling through Instagram and you saw the debate, instead of trying to figure out where you landed on the conversation, what you needed to do or what we should be doing more of is just leaning into the learning and recognizing that it's complicated. When a bunch of people are posting black squares in support of the Black Lives Movement a week after George Floyd was murdered... And by like noon that day, there was a lot of quick chatter like, hey, I don't think that Black Square was actually launched by activists on the ground and it's messing up the Instagram algorithm. Slow it down. And so then all people had to do was like, take it down. It's like totally fine to like adjust yourself. There, again, in the weeks after George Floyd's murder, there's a lot of discussion about defunding the police. There still is. And a friend of mine who was on the front lines of law enforcement, judicial reform, posted an eight-point plan on Instagram about how to defund the police where resources can be reallocated. Two days later, I went to go repost it. I couldn't find it on her feet. So I texted her. I was like, hey, where's that thing? And she's like, oh, I pulled it down because 0.4 and 0.7 actually need a little bit more work before I can go public with it. And I was like, okay. And that's not an excuse for me to like go back and binge watch Netflix. It's just an opportunity for me to keep watching. And so this idea of like, There's so much fear around like, I don't know how to prioritize. Do I prioritize saving the whales or our democracy or women in labor and delivery? Like, what do, how do I prioritize? And it's like this idea of like, well, you don't have to like, no one's asking you to show up and like solve the problem. It's often why we get blamed for saviorism, which I'm still very guilty of. I do it all the time. No one's asking you to come and show up and like fix it because if it was fixable, it would have probably already been fixed. Everyone's asking for us to pay attention in ways that our privilege has allowed us to turn our back to, ignore. And because of our 
excellent performances of turning our back that even when we know something's happening, we're still able to spin on our heels and look the other way because we've been so good at it for so many centuries. So I would invite folks that like, there's going to be more Adele Bontu knots. There's going to be more like, whoops, I shouldn't have posted the black square and give yourself the freedom to like, fuck up and like fix it. And my other reminder to everybody is nobody is watching that closely. Like nobody's keeping your score for you outside of yourself. And if you are a massive bank, a tire company, an amazing singer, or a rabbi at a synagogue in Westchester, like the only stance any of us should take is being willing to be moved. Like that's all I want in a politician is that they're movable. It's all I want in a husband is that they're movable. Right. That they're like you, where they're like, oh, wow, this was my understanding about labor and my income is supporting us and you're taking care of the kids. Like, I just want you to, like, be willing to change, be movable. And at the same time, one of the things I don't want to lose sight of is the fact that humor and comedy and laughing is still so important. I was on a staff call the other day and it was a bring your dog to work day on Zoom, obviously. And I have a huge cat allergy. I don't hate cats. I just don't love cats like I love my dogs. Part of it is the allergy. And two people had cats on the Zoom. And I jokingly like, executive order, no more cats on Zooms. And someone's like, all animal lives matter, you know, whatever. And I actually was kind of funny in the moment. And then I got some feedback later, like, oh, actually, a couple of people are really offended that you said you don't like cats. I'm like, really? And I'm like, well, I can't say anything anymore, you know? So it's like, it can be hard sometimes to be a leader and be yourself and not always be offensive. Maybe that's just me. I mean, maybe it is just you. Maybe you're a highly offensive person. My hunch is that's not the case, but... I'm like moderately offensive. Let's just say moderately <laughs> offensive. <laughs> I'm very offensive. Listen, but I would, I think there's an opportunity for us to just get better and do better. And if it's like a shitty cat joke that like hurts someone's feelings, I can laugh about the cat joke because I'm with you on cats. I don't get it (laughs) because I've never been a dog person, but I don't know. There's some people who their cats are like their babies. And when I like blow it off as I'm like, I don't get cats, it can make them question themselves in ways that you don't want them to. We want to facilitate opportunities and moments for each other where it gives people reason to love themselves more. And when you say things like you're not Jewish because your mom wasn't, or like, I don't get cats, or why would you order pizza from that place? Like, Why do you have pineapple on your pizza? That's disgusting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. People to be like, wait, am I faulty? Like, am I broken? And so I think people are scared to confront that. And I will say like, as if it's not clear, I am a very far left liberal progressive. And it's been in the past couple of days that I have started to say publicly because I didn't realize this. I'm apologizing to people, primarily those in my family, for making them feel stupid. Because I think it's so easy for liberals to be like, what do you mean you don't understand? Blah, 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 blah. What do you mean you think that it's going to be a socialist country or like for us to get all so worked up in the statistics and the policies and what Trump said? And like, and it is like head in hand, head shaking, head hitting my the wall worthy. But the way that our media is structured, it's if you're not actively looking for sources to contradict each other. And there's not a ton of them out there. If you don't have the bandwidth because you're juggling kids and jobs and like self-care, like we can make people feel like shit about their understanding of the world. And I think progressives have done a very effective job of making the right feel like idiots. And so instead of it being an opportunity to be like, hey, I actually think his immigration policy is hurting everybody. Come in and let's have a conversation about it. Instead, we're like, idiot, I don't say this. And then what's happening is you see flags going up that are like, make liberals cry again. The Trump flags are like 10 times bigger than the flags have ever been. They're not like, I agree with 100% of his policies. They're just big fuck yous to people who have hurt their feelings. 
Right. Which, again, goes back to your point a little bit about saviorism and how that can also kind of taint the overall environment, right? It's the kind of that self, we, and I too, like you, I'm very far left socially. Although, full disclosure, I'm actually an independent because I can't possibly align wholly with any one party because as a human being, there's no such thing as monoliths, right? It's like- Can I just say, not yeah. anyone who's listening- you vote for a candidate who's part of a party and that voting takes 30 seconds. Like this whole affiliation, a two-party system I write in the book, George Washington warned against having a two-party system and turns out he was right. Yes. And you do a really good job of explaining that. And that's another point of resonance in the book. I'm like, uh-huh, that's me. I get that. That makes total sense. But going back to the saviorism thing, so companies are also also have this like saviorism type of complex, right? They're writing checks, they have foundations. And where I net out is, I'm not so sure that their intent is as human, right? But I'll take it because it's still making an impact and that's great, but I just want them to stop with the nuance because there are distinctions without differences in the minds of the public, right? That need to be understood. So they just need to be honest about it, that's all. So- Companies who claim to have corporate social responsibility departments, divisions, who are now scrambling to build diversity, equity, inclusion departments, who are all trying to figure out how they can go higher from HBCUs, anyone who's now suddenly like, oh, shit, I didn't know what I didn't know. Like, yeah, you're late. And don't try to whitewash it with some of those quick fixes. Um, The whole sort of buy one, give one model that Tom's and Warby Parker and some other companies have thrived on, or when companies give away huge amounts of money, they can suddenly qualify themselves as impact corporations. Pepsi gives away like tens of millions of dollars. And what are they like an impact company? Like, I'm not sure I'm really going to like bite on that. The reason why we're so quick to let corporations and even individuals, and and I'll point to the Jewish community here, and I'll also point to some parts of the Christian community, including evangelicals in particular, where they're like, okay, let's give a certain percentage of our income away as tikkun alum, or that's our philanthropy, or that's how we're giving back for God in God's eyes and sort of meeting his civic quest, is it's based on a capitalistic society that suggests the most powerful thing that you have to give is your green dollar bill. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that the best that Jenna can give is what's in my bank account. I think it's helpful, but I don't think it's my gift or my offering to the world. And what I've found, particularly in the Jewish community, and since we've talked a lot about this on this podcast, and I haven't had an opportunity really to publicly talk about this, but so I'll take advantage here, but like I have a real issue with the way that Jewish community writes off their tikkun alam as if it is just in the form of money. And I don't see that anywhere in our Torah that says your philanthropy is in the currency of money. And so it makes it very easy to be like, okay, here's a hundred bucks or $10,000 or a hundred thousand dollars. And then nonprofits in the Jewish community have done a really great job building out organizational charts of their donors. So everybody affiliated with that nonprofit knows how much each other have given. So if you don't have the lion with all the diamonds, and maybe you do or don't know what organization I'm referencing with, then you didn't give as much as the woman who has all the lines with all the diamonds. And it's playing right into the ego and it's playing right into just give me the money. And if you can't give the money, you kind of feel bad about yourself. But the truth is, is like, I know people who I don't want their money. I want them to go teach. I want them to create music. I want them to convene people. I want them to give us sermons from the pulpit. I want them to heal people. I want them to listen. I want them to hold. I want them. I don't need, truthfully, I don't need people's money. And we see that COVID is forcing that in like in spades for us going into the school year where COVID has shined a light on all the cracks of our systems that are broken, which are 
100% of our systems. I'm not saying all components of that system are broken, but not all of our systems need revamping. Healthcare, education, food distribution, you name it. But what's happening is that families and communities are like, okay, are we going to school? I don't know. Maybe we're not going to school. If we don't go to school, let's pod together. And there's family units, little mini villages that are being forced together to care for each other's children, to create safe environments. I'm a little bit of like, screw the literacy milestones for the year 2020, 2021. Like, let's just get through the year in a safe way. But it's like, suddenly we're going to have all these mini villages that exist in like apartment buildings and zip codes. And the things that people are going to be bringing into those villages aren't cash. We're not giving our first graders cash. Like my dad is an artist. If we have to pot up this year, he's going to take care of the art class. One of the other kids' moms, she coaches soccer. She's going to handle gym. It's sort of like we're all going to be bringing different currency into these little mini communities that we need. And I'm really excited about what that means for us beyond the dumpster fire that we're in. <laughs> well, right. They call it bubbling, right? And it's actually kind of like a kibbutz in some ways in that people are sharing their expertise and their passion and their trade, right? Their real trade craft to lift each other up and help each other out. And I get what you're saying about the money thing. Although at the same time, I think we could probably agree that there still needs to be some level of a redistribution of wealth and equity. And in order to have social empowerment, you need to have economic empowerment as well. So it is complicated. It's not linear, right? It's like a confluence of things. But Right. If you want to talk about reparations, I'm happy to talk about the reallocation of resources. But I'm just saying for the people who grew up in my zip codes are probably in your zip code in Westchester. Don't think you've done everything that you've done because you wrote the check. Exactly. No, I agree with that. Totally separate topic. I can't believe I've lived as long as I have without hearing the WAIT acronym that you introduced very early on in the book. Why am I speaking? Why am I talking? Sorry, why am I talking? That would be... Why am I talking? Yes. So W-A-I-T stands for why am I talking, right? Right. It is so smart. And there's so many times I need to check myself, but also folks on my team, because if you're going to be talking, it really should have impact, right? There needs to be a purpose behind it versus just kind of blithering on and on. So thank you for that. That was a great gift. I have a sticky note on all of my computers. Yeah, it's screens. smart. So... I think everybody needs to read your book and I might even reread it or re-listen to it. Um, I definitely will now that I've missed the introduction since Audible forgot to put your introduction in. So I'm going to have to go back and do that. If you buy the Audible book, you will now get the introduction. But if you bought it, yes. Right. Over the summer, it's missing. One last question for you. And it's a little bit more personal, but you do talk about it in the book. And I, at almost 50, firmly believe that so much of who I am today is who I was as a child, good and bad. And we've all gone through things, right? And you talk very openly about alopecia and what that was like being a teenager and some of the fears that you had around that. And can you just talk a little bit about how that impacted who you are today and really what's your life's work? I mean, we're just talking about your book and you referenced how you were one of the key organizers behind the Women's March, but you also had a minor in astrophysics. You also started, I think, the first and only and the largest organ donation registry in the world. You've done so much in marginalized communities. You've done, you're not even 40 yet, I don't even think. And you've done so, so much. But growing up, how have some of those challenges shaped who you are today and what you're doing today? Yeah. Thanks. You've asked like three questions that I've not been asked yet. And I've done like more podcasts than I can think of. So if you're listening, you should continue to listen to this podcast because he's being very smart here. So I am a firm believer that out of adversity comes the growth. And the only reason I can say that with such confidence is because as a preteen and then an early teen, I lost all of my hair because of alopecia. And people have often said to me like, wow, Jenna, where does your confidence come from? And it's true. I can walk into, there isn't a room that I'm intimidated to walk into. And it's because starting at the age 11, I had to wear a wig and walk into my classroom and pretend like nothing was wrong. So I know how to put on the mask of confidence, even if I'm like a little bit dying inside. And so out of that adversity came that very beneficial tool that has 
meant that I could walk into offices at the United Nations and be like, I want a job here. And I don't know if it's because in those moments, I'm like, because nothing's as bad as when you were 11 and had a crush on Travis and he really liked Brooke, but you were wearing a wig and it was probably, you know, like, it's not like that happened every time I've gone to like, take a step and been like, good for you. You're tough and strong. But those kinds of adversity, I think, build you up to be a package to move forward with. And we really beat ourselves up as Americans, when things don't go according to the blueprint, because we don't see a lot of examples of really healthy and productive and wise decisions for families to separate. Or we don't see a lot of examples of people walking away from decades worth of work in a corporation because it's not a healthy place for them. There's not a lot of departure from the blueprint that is praised and welcomed. And I'm such a firm believer that out of adversity comes all of the blessings, all of the blessings. I lean on that a little bit as our collective is faced with very adverse challenges right now. I do know that there is an other side to this. I don't know, though, if that other side is in my lifetime. Like I do the whole, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's true. Like, yeah, not as many people are dying from communicable diseases. War isn't as prevalent as it used to be. But like, I don't know. The United States is still the 10th most dangerous country in the world because of our domestic violence rates and our labor and delivery rates for women. Sorry to clarify. Yeah, for women. So like, I don't know. You tell me. And like when Coates talks. And we represent 4% of the population, but 20% of the COVID cases, that's a little fucked up, right? That's not right. Right. Or like 25% of the people who are incarcerated, like this whole thing of like great like we're the greatest country. Like what the hell does that mean? Because we have spectacular national parks. Yes, the Grand Canyon is beyond and is worth everyone in the entire world seeing it. It is absolutely gorgeous. But that doesn't qualify us as great. What's so great about us and this idea of like having to compete, do I think we can be an example of hope? Do I think we can be an example of prosperity, of belonging, of building? You know, like I keep coming back to the Statue of Liberty and like, give me your weak, give me your tired, like her holding the book of justice and holding the light of the torch above her head. Like we can just be an example of people who are doing our best. Right. Yeah. And I'm sorry to, I can't end this podcast because it's just so interesting, but like you talk about whitewashing a lot in the book and revisionist history, even the juxtaposition between slavery and being enslaved. And I never say slavery anymore because of you. I say enslaved. Do you want to as to why you transitioned from slavery to enslavement? Why I transitioned? Well, do you want to explain to listeners why? Yeah, because it's not a choice. There is no choice, right? If I got that right, did I get that right? Well, the, the idea is, is that slavery suggests an identity, but because it was an involuntary identity, you go from being a slave to having been enslaved, right? This idea that it's like, it's also an past tense. And when we talk about African descendants, we say African descendants of the formerly enslaved. Right. And that same, I think it was in the same chapter, I used to put Lincoln on this pedestal. And at the end of the day, yes, he ended slavery, but the intent was to create a more harmonious union, not because he necessarily cared about human lives and people being enslaved. And I can't believe I've lived this long and I never really thought about it like that. And then I thought about my mom. And I thought about the fact that she came in through Ellis Island in 1948. But before that, she actually went from Vienna to Ireland. And why? Because FDR wouldn't take Jews. Yet we herald FDR. And listen, there's a lot of great things that FDR did. But one of the things he didn't do was allow Jews and immigrants who were being slaughtered by the millions to come into the country. So instead, she went to Ireland, Northern Ireland, and they were very welcoming. And she lived there until she was 17 and then came to the States, right? So there are these whitewashed views of history that we need to now deconstruct, reconstruct, take them for what they are, learn from them, and then move forward. So for that, I also thank you because it just, it made me connect dots that I hadn't connected before. 
Yeah, I think this idea, and again, since the running theme throughout this conversation is Judaism, Jews are never forget is our thing related to the Holocaust. And it's become so simplified. And it's like, well, what are we never forgetting? The loss of life? Sure. We will never forget the loss of life. But what we need to never forget are the 22 steps that happened from Belarus to France to the League of Nations not working. And I know I'm getting like in the weeds here, but like we have to never forget what got us to that moment. As much as we have to never forget the 5 million souls that perished. Because we can always just say, oh, there's a gravesite. Protect that gravesite. No, 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 no. If you want to really honor what never forgetness means, it means that we will never let something like that ever happen again. And let me make something crystal clear to you. We are teed up for a copy and paste of what went down. And so as well, let's never forget, never forget what? The amazing, the, the story of the concentration camps of Auschwitz? No, let's also never forget the complacency of well-intended Germans who didn't say anything, who didn't do anything going into that. That's what we forget. Because they didn't raise their hands and they didn't say, hine ni, here I am to stand up against this. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. And that brings it full circle. Listen, Jenna Arnold, everyone needs to read this book, Raising Our Hands. And I don't mean to simplify it because it is a quick and easy read in that it's very accessible. You're not preachy. You're not trying to make me feel guilty or feel badly. You actually, it's very empowering. And it's not just for white women. It's for everybody. It's anybody who has a soul should read this book. And Jenna, I would just close by saying um, the world is a much better place with you in it. So thank you. And I wish there were more Jenna Arnolds in the world. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you taking time. I appreciate you having these conversations. I appreciate you biking safely. All of the alls. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.